Uh, well, friends, have you ever seen good news spreading? Have you ever seen good news spreading? Uh, when my wife and I were at uh, our previous church, we had a friend there who set up an internet business selling women's shoes. Uh, she called them Mox shoes. Uh, do we have women who own a pair of Mox shoes? Uh, quite, no, only one. Oh, many, many. Um, anyway, these friends uh, used, wanted to use this business as a way of supporting Christian work. But uh, as soon as uh, the women at the church, including my wife, saw the shoes, there was absolute pandemonium. Uh, they simply could not help talking about how comfortable these shoes were, or how fashionable these shoes were, or how affordable these shoes were. Now, I'm not getting any commission for saying this, <laughs> by the way, but the good news just spread like wildfire. And uh, I want to suggest that uh, this is a little bit like what we see happening in our passage this morning from Matthew's Gospel. There is a sense in which truly good news must spread. There is a sense in which truly good news must spread. Now, uh, we've been seeing this good news in Matthew's Gospel already, if you've been joining us for a little while. Uh, if you remember, in chapters 8 to 9, we've been seeing uh, Jesus' miraculous works, haven't we? Uh, what is happening in these chapters is Jesus is giving us a little bit of a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. You know, as John mentioned, he heals the sick. He drives out demons. He calms the storm. He even raises the dead. For he is giving us a glimpse of what heaven will be like, where there will be no more sickness, no more brokenness, and no more death. And yet, Jesus has not come to do these healing miracles indefinitely. Remember, they are just a preview uh, or a movie trailer of what is to come, what heaven is really going to be like. But Jesus has come with the good news that this kingdom is very near. And you can now enter this kingdom by turning from your sin and submitting your life to him as the king of this kingdom, as God's king and Messiah. Uh, Jesus gives his mission statement, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Uh, if you have a look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, he gives his reason for coming into the world. He says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, this is the reason why Jesus has come. He's come to call sinners into the kingdom. Which is wonderful news is if you are a sinner. Now, if you come to the beginning of our passage this morning in chapter 9, verse 35, chapter 9, verse 35, you can see there a summary of Jesus' ministry up to this point. Uh, Matthew reports, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. But I also want you to notice that this ministry of Jesus that he has been doing now must spread. In chapter 10, verse 1, 
He calls his 12 disciples to himself and gives them authority to do the very same ministry that he has been doing. And in chapter 10, verse 5, he sends them out to continue doing this ministry. There is a sense in which good news must spread. But what lies at the heart of this ministry or mission of Jesus? What lies at the core of Jesus' ministry? Well, friends, I want you to see very clearly this morning that what lies at the heart of it all, at, at, at the centre of Jesus' ministry, is his deep compassion for those around him. And you can see it there in uh, chapter 9, verse 36. Chapter 9, verse 36, where Matthew tells us, when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, when Matthew uses the word crowds there, he's not dis- describing committed disciples of Jesus who are following him. He's simply describing the crowd of, G- uh, of people who are milling around him, who are perhaps curious about him, but who are not yet committed disciples. However, I want you to notice how these crowds are described. For you can see there that they are described as vulnerable animals who are hunted or are being hunted by a predator almost to the point of death. Uh, The word harassed there literally means an animal that is being skinned. The word helpless literally means being thrown to the ground. And so the picture here is of these people uh, being like that helpless animal that is thrown to the ground by a predator to be torn into pieces. Uh, You'll notice that Jesus adds to this image by describing them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, uh, I'm not a farmer, as you can probably tell, but uh, I've heard that sheep... uh, can get themselves into trouble fairly quickly. Uh, You know, they're not very fast animals, and so they can't outrun a predator. Further, they are stupid animals, and so they can't outthink a wolf. And so the only hope that sheep have is if a shepherd stands between them and the predator and protects them. From the wolves. Now, uh, the image of sheep and shepherds is used quite a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's the people of Israel who are described as sheep, and it's the kings and rulers of Israel who are described as shepherds. However, if you know the sad history of Israel, you will know that rather than protecting the sheep and feeding the sheep and nourishing the sheep, Well, the leaders of Israel and the kings of Israel utterly failed in their role. Rather than leading the sheep to God's blessing, they led them in their degeneracy to judgment in the Babylonian exile. And so in places like Ezekiel chapter 34, which was read out for us earlier, God utterly condemns these kings and rulers... And he says that one day he himself will come 
to seek out his sheep. He will gather his sheep and he will feed them and nourish them and he will appoint one great shepherd to rule over them, a shepherd in the line of King David. Uh, On my bookshelf, I have a book called Losing My Religion, Unbelief in Australia. It's a book written by a person called Tom Frame. Uh, And in this book, he asks the question, how did we as a country go from being a country where most of the population professed uh, some kind of Christian faith at the time of Federation in 1901 to becoming one of the most secular and godless countries on earth. How did that actually happen? Now, I'm sure there are many factors, um, and the author considers many factors, but a big factor is the failure of Christian leaders to teach and to nourish and to feed the flock in such a way that the false teachers came in. (laughs) Uh, Theological liberalism came in and scattered the sheep. You see, whenever the leadership of God's people become ungodly or inadequate in their leadership, well, the people become like sheep without a shepherd. So that should be a warning to us who are leaders as well amongst us. Now, I don't think that Jesus is denying individual responsibility for sin here uh, on the part of the, the sheep. But when he sees the desperate plight of the crowds who are living under the shadow of death, under the judgment of God, well, he does lay a large part of that blame on their leaders, doesn't he? And so, how does Jesus respond to the sheep? Well, Notice that how Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't sort of look at the crowds and look at the sheep and kind of um, wag his finger at them in condemnation, in moralistic finger-wagging. He doesn't respond with cool indifference to them and their plight, but his heart goes out to them. He responds with compassion. Uh, The word compassion there literally describes a physical uh, reaction in the belly. Now, have you ever felt moved so much that you actually feel it in your belly? It's, it's that kind of compassion that he's talking about here. It's a gut-wrenching compassion, a, a stomach-churning compassion for the sheep that are scattered. And friends, uh, if... At the heart of Jesus' ministry and mission lies this kind of gut-wrenching compassion for the lost. Well, surely disciples of Jesus ought to respond in the same way, shouldn't they? How do you and I respond when we see our nation living in rebellion against God? What do we feel when we see the crowds? You know, perhaps when we catch the train to work of a morning or when we're standing in the school playground 
uh, looking at other families. So often it's easy to simply respond with, you know, the finger, wagging the finger, condemning their lifestyle. And so often Christians can be so unfriendly to other people. I think I've, I've even seen it in our church, how sometimes we are unfriendly to new people who come to us. And we can often retreat into our own ghettos where we are comfortable. But as we see our Lord Jesus Christ deeply moved with a gut-wrenching compassion for the crowds, uh, I wonder whether, for some of us at least, uh, this is an area where we must deeply change and deeply repent. I saw the other day that we Australians spend more money on our pets than we do on foreign aid. Uh, we are becoming a less compassionate people in this country. And I wonder whether many, for many Christians, it's no different when it comes to our compassion on the people who are lost, our compassion for people who are heading towards an eternity of suffering under God's judgment. We must deeply repent, brothers and sisters. Now, uh, if you are a disciple who is full of gut-wrenching compassion, and I hope that for many of us we are, if we are this kind of disciple, then what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, I'll tell you how I might have answered that question uh, as a pastor of a church. Uh, I might have said... Well, as people who have gut-wrenching compassion for the lost, uh, let's run some training events so that we get trained in how to share the gospel. Or uh, I might have said, as people who have gut-wrenching compassion for those around us, let's organize a spring mission where we go out there and you know, tell as many people about the gospel as possible. Now, don't get me wrong, friends, uh, these are good things, and uh, I think those who are really compassionate about people around us will find ways to do these things one way or another. And yet, I want you to see that this is not Jesus' first impulse in this passage. For what Jesus says next to his disciples, you'll notice, is that they are to pray. They are to pray. You can see it there in verse 37, chapter 9, verse 37. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, the image here is of an abundant harvest field, isn't it? Uh, perhaps of grain or some kind of fruit. Uh, in the Old Testament, the image of the harvest was actually an image of God's judgment. You know, uh, the good fruit would be picked uh, for the farmer and the bad fruit would be tossed into the fire to burn eternally. And yet, uh, the image that Jesus presents here is a very positive image, isn't it? For he says that there is a plentiful harvest out there. 
a plentiful harvest full of fruit that is to be brought in for the owner of the farm. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever been apple picking before. Who's been apple picking here uh, in, in Bilpin? Um, but a few seasons ago, I, I went apple picking with my family at the height of the apple season. And uh, I still remember walking out uh, into a big field with uh, literally rows and rows of apple trees with these big, juicy apples just hanging off the trees. There were hundreds and thousands of apples, literally more apples than we had hands to pick them. And that's the kind of image that Jesus gives us here to describe those who are to be brought into the kingdom. Now, uh, friends, I realize that we may often not feel this way, uh, particularly as we live in the secular Western world, which uh, is fast running away from God, it may feel sometimes that there is no harvest out there. Have you ever felt like that before? But Jesus reminds us here that there is a plentiful harvest. Um, we don't know where that harvest is, but certainly if we look Globally, there is a plentiful harvest of people that are waiting to be brought in for the kingdom. And so notice that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to pray here for revival. You know, often when uh, Christians in the West gather to pray, uh, we pray for revival, don't we? Um, because, you know, we think that there's not much harvest. But what does Jesus tell them to pray for? Notice that Jesus tells his disciples that they are to pray for more laborers. For that is the great need of this hour, more laborers for the harvest. It's the fact that laborers are so few in number. And it's true, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, yesterday we had the Strathfield Spring Festival out there in Strathfield uh, uh, Park, and we had many people from our church come and uh, speak with people about Jesus, and uh, you all did a fantastic job, uh, whether you helped out in a small way or a big way. But friends, there are 30,000 people living in this Strathfield area, and uh, can you imagine if all 30,000 people came to Strathfield Park yesterday. You know, even if our whole church uh, went out there and all the churches in our area went out there, we would not even have begun to scratch the surface of the people we could have met and spoken to. In Strathfield, let alone Sydney and Australia and the world, the, the place where Sam and Shanshan are going. Very few workers of the Lord. And so Jesus says we are to pray earnestly for more and more laborers to be sent out into the harvest field for God, by God. Uh, who are these laborers? Uh, well, the picture that we get here is of a hard-working laborer. Uh, it's the kind of person who will roll up their sleeves and do whatever it takes to get out there and do the work. 
the difficult work of harvesting. Now, you know, it's not like those council workers that work in front of my place, and they, um, I'm sure they have more than one lunch break during the day. These are serious workers that Jesus is talking about here. But it's not just full-time gospel workers that he's talking about here, isn't it? You know, sometimes I think, um, you know, we, we can think as a church that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that idea of supporting missionaries and sending out missionaries into this world. But, and, and that's a very important thing. We need to be praying for that, and we need to be praying for more people to be raised up for full-time Christian ministry. But one of the things that we will see as we progress through Matthew chapter 10 is that Jesus here is speaking more generally about ordinary disciples of Jesus. People like you and me. And here's the thing. Look at what happens immediately after Jesus tells his disciples to pray. Uh, In Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, Immediately after Jesus tells his disciples to pray, what does he do? Well, he calls the very same disciples to himself and he gives them the authority to go and, ex- and extend the ministry and mission that he himself has been involved with. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, uh, you'll see there that Matthew reports, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus is putting his team together here, isn't he? We're not too told too, too many details about this team. Uh, all we know that it, here is that they're a pretty unimpressive crew. You know, I mean, you have a few fishermen and uh, a reformed tax collector and a few political fanatics who've somehow been captured and captivated by Jesus. But here's the point. Jesus tells his disciples that they are to pray to God to send more laborers out into the harvest field. And here, the very same disciples are the answer to their own prayers as Jesus sends them out and prepares uh, to send them out into the harvest field. And so, friends, I want you to see that, yes, you and I are to pray for more and more laborers to go into the harvest field. But it's actually a dangerous thing if we earnestly pray for these things. For if you and I earnestly pray to God that he will send out more and more laborers into the harvest field because they are so few in number, well, don't be surprised if God says to you, You go. You be the one who go. You be the answer to your own prayers. You know, if you and I earnestly pray that God would send more and more people 
out into the workplace to, send, uh, to, to tell people about Jesus. Don't be surprised if God says to you, why don't you do it? If you and I pray that God will send more and more missionaries out into the unreached parts of the world to tell the world about Jesus, well, don't be surprised if God says, why not you do it? You go, you get trained, and you do the work. Well, friends, as we've read this account of Jesus extending his ministry and missions through his disciples, uh, we've seen a number of things, haven't we? Um, firstly, we've seen the heart of mission, which is compassion for people. We've seen the impulse of mission, which is that of prayer. But what exactly is the mission itself? What are the disciples of Jesus to do? Uh, it's an important question because Christians often speak about mission work and mission trips and mission fields. And uh, this word mission just gets tossed around. And uh, I think it's true to say that the word mission has been applied to so many different things that uh, often Christians are not very clear as to what we are talking about when we talk about mission. Uh, one Christian writer says this, he says, it used to be that mission referred pretty, pretty narrowly to Christians sent out cross-culturally to convert non-Christians and plant churches. But now, mission is understood much more broadly. Environmental stewardship is mission. Community renewal, changing the culture, is mission. Blessing our neighbours, mowing our neighbours' lawn for them, is mission. Mission is here, mission is there, mission is everywhere, he says. We are all missionaries. Another writer says, if mission, oh, sorry, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. And so what is mission? One of the challenges of reading a passage like the one we have before us in Matthew's Gospel is that we get an inkling that there are many things said here which are not immediately applicable to us. Is that right? There are some things that are said here to the apostles, the 12 apostles, that are not immediately applicable to us. And so how do we go about working out what is unique to the, the 12 apostles and what principles we can apply to ourselves? But uh, I think uh, you can work this out just by uh, a careful reading of the text and the scriptures more broadly. And so, for example, it seems to me that the ability to heal every disease and every affliction is something that is unique to the 12 apostles. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 1, notice that the authority to do these things is given to the 12 disciples, which is a limited number, isn't it? And if this power to heal the sick and, and, raise, and even raise the dead, which is the authority that is given to the disciples here, uh, has been given to every disciple of Jesus, then we would expect to see some very old people uh, 
among the Christian community, 2,000-year-old disciples, perhaps. Later in the New Testament, it doesn't seem that these healing miracles are always accompanied by the gospel. Further, it seems to me that the geographical area that Jesus sends his disciples to uh, is also unique to the 12 apostles. Uh, you know, in, in chapter 10, verses 5 to 6, Jesus tells his apostles that they are not to go to the Gentile or uh, non-Jewish areas, the Samaritan areas, but they are just to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, it was Israel who had the promises of a Messiah. And so it was appropriate that first and foremost, the good news of the kingdom would go to them, that the good news would be proclaimed to the Jews, that their, your king has arrived. But later on, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see uh, the call of the gospel go out to the, to the nations. But here, it is limited to Israel. Now further, it seems to me that in chapter 10, verse 9, uh, Jesus' command to take no money or bag or extra provisions is also unique to the 12 apostles. I mean, the principle of relying on God for provision um, is something that is applicable across the generations. But this specific command not to take any money or extra provisions is unique. For later on, uh, we see Jesus reversing uh, this command in Luke chapter 22, verse 36. You don't need to look it up now, but uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 36, he actually reverses this command for his, apostles, uh, for his disciples. And further, it seems to me that the practice of shaking the dust from your feet um, in, in verse 14 as a way of condemning those who don't, you know, turn to Christ is something also that is unique for that particular time and place. For uh, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, uh, there are frequently times when he goes into towns and uh, the gospel is rejected, but he will simply stay and continue to do the work of the gospel. And so there are many things here that are unique to the twelve. However, there are two things here which define what missionary work is all about. Uh, one of them is persecution, which uh, I'm not going to deal with too much today because we'll be looking at that particular theme next Sunday. But the thing I want you to see today is that the work of mission is essentially about the verbal proclamation of the gospel, the verbal proclamation that Jesus is king. You can see it there in verse 7 where Jesus says, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the work of mission is about verbally proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near. That the kingdom of heaven is, is not here fully yet. That's why it's near. And yet now is the time for sinners to enter that kingdom. And so the proclamation involves calling upon sinners to repent 
to turn from their sinful ways and to turn to God before it is too late, submitting themselves to Jesus, God's King, who has the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal salvation. According to Jesus, this is Christian mission. In other words, Christian mission is not about building houses for the poor, as good and noble a task as that is. It's not about mowing our neighbours' lawns, as good and noble as that is. It is not about anything and everything loving that we can do for our community. Uh, You know, these are all good things, and sometimes it's good for these things to accompany Christian mission. But the Bible has another category of speaking about these things, and that is good works. But they are not in and of themselves the work of Christian mission. For missionary work is always about the verbal proclamation that Jesus is king, and you must repent before the day of judgment to find forgiveness and new life in him. But friends, before I finish this morning, I just want you to see that this work is not for the privileged few. It's not just for those who are particularly gifted in this area, but it's actually for all disciples of Jesus. It is true that some of us will be more uh, able than others to do this work, but doing the work of verbal proclamation is actually built into the very fabric of being a disciple of the king. Even in Matthew 10, you'll notice that the work of mission begins very specifically with the 12, but then as you go through the chapter, Jesus speaks much more generally. Uh, For example, as Jesus speaks about persecution uh, in verse 24, he says, a disciple, it's a much more general word, isn't it? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Uh, Later on in verse 34, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You see, he's talking about ordinary disciples like you and me. And so, uh, if you are a disciple of Jesus, and I take it that many of us are, uh, what are you and I going to do with this? As we go out to morning tea today, what are we going to do with what we have heard from God? As we go out to our workplaces tomorrow morning or to our mother's groups or schools, uh, what are we going to do with what God is saying to us? Will we simply retreat? Or will we, like the Lord Jesus, be filled with compassion and do all we can whether it's in big or small ways, to proclaim that Jesus is King and in him there is the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us this morning. We thank you especially for our Lord Jesus, that he is our great shepherd, the one who feeds and nourishes and protects us and leads us to eternal life. And we thank you for his gut-wrenching compassion, his compassion towards us that has brought us to life 
and also his compassion for those who are still lost. Now, Father, we confess that often we do not have the same compassion for those around us. And so we pray that you would forgive us and that you would be the one who gives us a heart that feels this kind of compassion. Uh, help us as disciples to be the people who have a deep, gut-wrenching compassion like Jesus for those around us. Help us to welcome the newcomer among us so that they might know Jesus better. Help us to seek the salvation of those in our workplaces and neighbourhoods and the places where we regularly go. Uh, help us to do that great work of compassion, of verbally proclaiming the good news that Jesus is King. And we pray that we might call upon sinners to repent and find forgiveness and a place in your heavenly kingdom. Uh, for we pray this not for our own sakes, but for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.